Today we're going to do kind of get three, and you'll see why we chose to do these together. They're a little bit shorter, but there's some great and deep significance to these passages in Matthew uh, chapter 2. The Bible is very clear from the beginning of the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation that one, God made us, that He created us. He is the source of all things. And it's very clear that we have offended Him with our sin. We've sinned against Him. We've violated His holiness, His righteous standard. And because of that, we deserve... We don't deserve His kindness, His love, His compassion, His mercy. We deserve His judgment, what the Bible calls His wrath. However, it also says that God is loving and He is kind and He is generous, which is why He sent His Son to pay for our offense in Jesus. The Bible calls that grace. Unearned, unworked for, unmerited favor, blessing. And what we're going to see in these three stories today, I want, you to, I want you to think about the word grace. There is nothing in us or in anyone that motivated or moved God to do what He did in these three passages as we read about them, of the early infant life of the Lord Jesus, as God protected Him, as He guided Him. No one deserves the Savior, and yet He has graciously been given to us by a loving Father. So, the, the five scenes are, and this isn't, can you click it, Mark? So we looked at an unexpected dream the first week, an unexpected king last week, and then we're going to look at these three that I've circled there for you, an unexpected trip, sorrow, and then we'll end with an unexpected hometown. And what we mean by unexpected is the Bible expected Jesus to come in the way that He did and even wrote about it and gave us information. However, the Jews of the day, those who were living during the time when Jesus was born, they didn't expect Him to come the way He did, which is why we say unexpected. It was very different from what they thought and what God was going to do. So Matthew chapter 2 Advance the next slide, Mark. I don't think this thing's working this morning. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 15 as we begin. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Kind of to bring you up to speed where we're at in the story Jesus had been told, or or excuse me, Mary had been told that she would give birth to the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel. An angel then came to Joseph and confirmed to him, hey, she was not unfaithful to you. That which was conceived in her womb was born by the Holy Spirit, Jesus, who would save his people from their sins. We then read last week that 
after he was born in a lowly place in Bethlehem, wise men, magi, came to visit the king of the Jews. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they had told King Herod, who was the ruler of Israel at that time, or what was known as Judea, we have come to look for the king of the Jews. And when he heard that, he was alarmed because he was king of the Jews. And he was thinking, wait a minute, what what do you mean the king of the Jews? That's me. And so he secretly meets with the wise men. He says, hey, tell me where he's at. I want to come and worship him too, which was a lie. We'll see how that plays out here in a moment. Magi go and see him. They give him gifts. And then they're warned by God in a dream. Hey, don't go back to Herod to tell him where Jesus is. Rather, go home another way. And then we we hear what just happened here. And this kind of gives us an indication of what Herod's intentions are. The Lord tells Joseph, and he's already done this several times, he says, hey, you need to get up and go. You need to leave because Herod wants to kill the child. You need to get up and leave right now and flee to Egypt. So here's the picture. Think about it. Here is Joseph and Mary. They've been heard all these prophecies about the son that has been born to them. They have just seen wise men from the east come and present very costly gifts to their child. Gold, representing the fact that he's royalty. Frankincense, which represents that he is God. And myrrh, that points to the fact that he is a man, he's mortal. Very costly gifts. You can imagine what's going through their mind at this point. Wow, we have been blessed to raise the Messiah of Israel. At this point, shepherds have come to look at the child. And Joseph is told, probably in a, when there, there's an attitude of worship and thankfulness and gratitude, you need to get up and go. You need to leave right now. And the text indicates, look what it says, is that after he is told to rise, take the child, and flee to Egypt... He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. The picture was, after he had woken up from the dream, he wakes up, Mary said, Mary, we got to go. You got to pack the baby. We got to take all the stuff that was given to us, and we need to leave right now. Herod is coming to kill the child. And they go. About 75 miles from where they were at to the border of Egypt, and then another 100 miles, about 175 miles, to get to where they would have been safe in the land of Egypt to protect Jesus' life. And then Matthew quotes a scripture that's out of the book of Hosea, and I'm going I'm to show you why this is important and why this is significant. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. That prophecy is from the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. And originally it was a reference to when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. Remember that? Remember they went to, to in order to preserve life because it was famine in the days of Jacob. They went down to Egypt so that they would live and flourish and prosper. Remember Joseph went first and then his family and then they were there for about 400 years. But after 400 years they became slaves and, the, and Pharaoh was oppressing them, abusing them. And then God brought them out of the land of Egypt. He delivered them. Kind of a picture of salvation, of redemption. And he leads Israel into the wilderness and then finally into the promised land, which would be Israel. 
Hosea remembers or commemorates that event, and he says that the Lord called Israel, the nation, his son, and led him out of Egypt. Here, Matthew tells us that that was a reference to the real son of God, that is Jesus. Basically, what Matthew is telling us is is that the nation of Israel served as what we call a type, or put it this way, a sign that pointed to Jesus. In the same way that, that Israel was precious to God, he chose them, that he had, was to be a light to the peoples, or uh, meaning the nation, that all pointed to the real, genuine Son of God, who was what I would call, go to the next slide, Mark, the true Son of God, King Jesus. In other words, the nation was kind of a signpost that pointed to the one that was coming. And basically what Matthew is saying here is that the one that I have been talking about for centuries has now come. There's also kind of the the mindset of, of, of salvation or redemption. As Israel was brought out of Egypt to be saved, the Son of, real Son of God, the true Son of God, King Jesus, will come out of Egypt to bring true salvation. Out of Egypt, I called my son. One of the things I want you to think about in this moment, we'll see it again. At this point in Israel's history, when he brings them out of the land of Egypt, even in the book of Hosea and the message that that teaches us, of God's grace. There is nothing in the people, or anyone for that matter, that has earned the coming of the Son, the true Son of God. Think about it. Jesus, at His birth, we sing about it in our Christmas carols, was king at His birth. Why? Because He has always existed, but this event, when He was born into the world, He took upon Himself human flesh. He became a man. He became like one of us. I think when I think about that, I think about what the Bible says about heaven and, and the throne room and everyone is before God and all day long they're worshiping God. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The New Testament tells us that that was Jesus, that he receives praise and honor and glory. And then at some point, because that's kind of how we think, even though God doesn't live, uh, he's not limited by time, but at some point, whatever that means in eternity, God says, all right, it's time for you to go. And Jesus steps off the throne. All right, Father, I will do your will. And he's conceived in the womb of the virgin. King Jesus, the true Son of God. No one can earn that. No one is worthy or deserving of the King to come to us in this way. And he fulfills Scripture as he does. As Israel was, was God's son, they also pointed to the true son of God, King Jesus, who would come. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, that's the king, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, listen to this, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, which is where they were living and where he was born, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, 
weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. What we learned last week is that this king, King Herod, who had been appointed ruler over uh, Judea by Rome, and he was given the title King of the Jews, what we know and what we learned last week, if you weren't here, is that this was a very brilliant leader, a very um, great builder, but a very brutal man. He already killed his wife and two of his sons at this point because he thought that they were rising up against him. Right before he dies, he kills a third son because he suspects conspiracy. So when we read that he committed this atrocity by killing all the male children in this little town of Bethlehem, which would have been about maybe a dozen to 15 kids, boys, young boys, two years and younger, it's very believable. He was that kind of a guy. In fact, I've been to the land of Israel, and there was a fortress right next to Bethlehem called the Herodium, where the, where he, where the, the soldiers would have been dispatched. And it kind of looks down upon the town. And you can, you, you can, I can picture it in my mind's eye that would have been told to go, go kill all the male children two years and younger. And the soldiers are dispatched. And next thing you hear, with probably within 10, 15 minutes, just weeping and wailing throughout the town. Why did Herod do that? Why was he motivated and moved by to, to do this unthinkable thing? Well, he had learned from the Magi that this one who was born was to be king of the Jews. The leaders had given him the scripture that prophesied that he'd be born in Bethlehem. And here his real motivation is brought to light. He didn't want to go worship the king of the Jews. He wanted to kill this rival. He wanted to take him out. Why? Because more than anything, Herod was about Herod. He was self-driven, self-motivated. Herod loved Herod. And he didn't want anyone to threaten his position. Which is interesting because he's at the end of his life here. He will only live a few more months. What we know from Jewish history is that he had a very severe uh, intestinal uh, sickness. And he was dying miserable. I mean, you would think the guy would soften up toward the end of his life. Hey, I'm about to go out. Maybe I should make amends for all the things that I've done. You know, I'm not going to get to sit on this throne forever. One of my sons is going to take over, which he did have one, a couple more left. Yet he doesn't. In fact, the text says he became furious when the Magi didn't come and tell him where Jesus was. It's interesting the way Matthew records that. He became furious. There's, there's ways in which we speak of action or what we call verbs. When we use it actively, we would say, I did something, like I walked or I, uh, I touched the chair. That's me doing the action, right? The chair is receiving the action. But the way he describes this is it's what we call the passive. In other words, the fury or the, the anger is kind of being done upon Herod. In other words, fear, the anger came upon him, and it's, and it's described in a, it's two words. He became very or intensely furious. What does that teach us? Well, think about Herod. Herod was about Herod. He was about his desires, his passions, his lusts, what he wanted, and it ruled the way he lived. 
It's what motivated him. His desires, his anger took control of him. His sinful, self-centered desires. And he was given over to them. And they motivated him to do what he did. He was a self-driven man. That's the way sin works. If Christ does not rule in your hearts, your sinful desires will. Now, they don't always get this horrific, but this is an example of our uh, inability to overcome our sin. And if we continually live self-centeredly and self-driven, we will be ruled by our own sinful desires. Jesus was probably about 6 to 18 months at this point, and Herod kills all the young boys in order to take him out. But as we already know, what Jesus is gone, right? God preserved him. God saved him. It's interesting. God could have like just immediately like or miraculously transported Jesus to somewhere safe. He could have he could have done a lot of he could have blinded the soldiers. He could have just took out Herod. But he doesn't. He takes him to Egypt, protects his son, and then Herod does what he does, kills all the male children 2 years and under, probably about a dozen to maybe 18 kids. Horrific act. And then Matthew tells us that this, was fulfilled, this fulfilled another prophecy. This is interesting prophecy here. In the history of the Jews, towards the end of their uh, kind of golden age, or I could put it that way, they were given over to the nation of Babylon as judgment for their sins. Sins like they were sacrificing their babies to false gods. There was rampant, unchecked sexual immorality, deceit, treachery, bribery with all levels of government, worship of false idols everywhere. And so God gives them to Babylon. And he says, you will go into captivity into a nation that is not your own because you've sinned against us. The Lord told the children of Israel. And this is a record, this is quoted from the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. When all the captives, are, they were all gathered in Ramah, the city in, in Israel, and they were taken to Babylon. And the scripture in Jeremiah describes Rachel, who was the, kind of known as the mother of Israel, right? The wife of Jacob. Israel, the mothers of Israel are personified or represented by this one Rachel who was weeping for their children going into captivity. That's what the original context meant. However, if you read the rest of that passage, it really is one of hope because God says, even though Rachel is weeping for her sons who are going into captivity, within 70 years, I will bring them back to this land. Why? Because of the verse that you read this morning, interestingly enough. I have plans for you. I have a, I'm going to give you a hope. I'm not done with you. So really, in the midst of this massive tragedy of the people being taken to another country, This really is a message of hope where God says, hey, I'm not done with you. I am going to deal with your sin. You're going to have to, there's a penalty for your sin. You're going to go into captivity, but I will bring you back. Think about this. At this point, there is nothing within the nation of Israel that would motivate God to say, yeah, you've been horrific. But you know what? I'm going to give you a break. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to be nice to you because you deserve it. Nothing like that is in this scene. This is a message of hope motivated by God's kindness or by His 
grace. So really, go to the the next point here. King Jesus brings hope to sinners. And that's really what Matthew is saying here. And even though Herod has committed this tragedy and the women are weeping, what he is saying here, but really, the bigger picture is that hope is being brought to the nation. Jesus, King Jesus, their Savior, has been born. Even though a sinful man like Herod tries to stamp him out. Basically what God is saying, in the same way that I had hope for Israel, I brought you hope in the person of Jesus. King Jesus brings hope to sinners. Now I put sinners on purpose. Why? Because we don't deserve the hope that he brings. We don't deserve that redemption. It's motivated by God's grace. Salvation is by grace. Herod would die shortly after this, months probably. And this is what happens after he dies. This is verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And when he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. What we know is that Herod had this massive intestinal sickness. We don't know exactly what it was. But he would succumb to death within months from this event. Um, We hear from the passage that there were more than just Herod trying to kill Jesus. Probably his son, Archelaus, because he didn't want a rival either. But Herod dies. And during this, you know, it could have been six months, maybe up to a year where they were in Egypt. Remember, Joseph and Mary are poor. But how do you think God provided for them in a land that was not their own? Think about what the gifts of the Magi brought. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. More than likely, that's what they lived off of. Again, God's showing that he would provide and take care of his son. Herod dies. God tells Joseph, all right, go back to the land of Israel. Now, Joseph and Mary are from Nazareth, but they go, it seems as though they're maybe trying to go back to Bethlehem because of the significance that that's where the Messiah was to be born, and he was born there, and maybe we should go back. But they're warned again not to go. Why? Because Herod's son is there, and this guy was brutal as well. So they go to the northern part of Israel, which is known as Galilee, back to the town, which where they're from, Nazareth, so that the baby would be safe. Again, God providing protection for his son. They come out of the land of Egypt, They go through the southern part and they get to Galilee, and there they go to the city of Nazareth. Now, we're very familiar with that that name, Nazareth, that city where Jesus was born. You can go there today. It's still there. The edge of the city kind of overlooks a a big valley known as the Valley of Jezreel. In fact, that was the cliff that they tried to push Jesus off of when he became an adult because they thought he was speaking against God. Nazareth. Right? We, we use the, tame, the term Jesus of Nazareth. Later on in the book of Acts, those who followed Jesus were called Nazarenes. 
And we kind of tend to have a, somewhat of a, a starry-eyed view of the city of Nazareth. It must have been a great place. That's where Jesus lived. That must have been a great town. However, Nazareth was actually despised. I mean, the northern part of Israel where the non-Jews lived, the Gentiles, the Jews didn't like that either. It was kind of like, um, and, and you, you, you'll, you'll get this. In some of our cities today in the United States, there is, um, you know, you had these old neighborhoods where most, they used to be predominantly white people. But then non-whites moved in, and then the whites moved out. They call that, like if you study sociology and stuff like that, they call that white flight, right? Um, because of, for whatever reason, they don't want to live among other cultures or whatever. It could be racism or maybe just crime, whatever. That's kind of what Galilee was like. A lot of the Jews didn't like to live there, even though some still did. But because those were the non-Jews, the people that you don't want to be around. That's what it was like. And then one of the worst towns in Nazareth or in Galilee was Nazareth. In fact, Nathaniel, when he is told by Philip, listen to this. This is John chapter 1, verse 46. Philip had learned that Jesus was the Messiah from James and John, and he goes to Nathaniel, who would later be a disciple, and he says to him, Hey, come and see, we have found the Messiah. And Nathaniel says this. Nathaniel said to Philip, he goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Go to the next slide. King Jesus was despised. And he lived in a town that was despised. Nazareth was not a nice place. There was a city not too far from Nazareth called Sixthopolis. It was a Roman city. And you know when we read that Jesus was the son of a carpenter? The word there is just builder. And if you've ever been to the land of Israel, there's not much wood more than likely, but there's a lot of rock. More than likely, Jesus and his father Joseph were builders. And more than likely, they, were, they would help build this Roman city, which was not too far from Nazareth, where they worked on stone. They were working class, and that's what kind of town this was. It was known for treachery, right? It was known for uh, feuds between neighbors. It was one of those places that you really didn't want to go. Yet more than likely, Joseph and Mary had to live there, not only to protect Jesus, but they were probably from there because they were poor. Since nobody wanted to be there, it was probably more affordable. And this is where Jesus goes to live. And Matthew says that this was to fulfill what the prophet said, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's a problem there. There is no scripture in the Old Testament that says that, that says that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, there's two ways to view what, so is, is, did Matthew get something wrong in which our understanding of the Bible is no, it's men moved by God, spoke from God. So Matthew's not wrong, but it's not really like, you know, earlier where he said, Jeremiah said this, and you can go find it, or earlier Hosea said this, and you can go find that. You can't find this phrase, he shall be called a Nazarene in the Old Testament. So it, it could be one of two things. It could be it was an oral prophecy given by some unnamed prophet or prophets. Not all the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament were written down. So maybe that's what's going on. And it was just carried down kind of by word of mouth through the centuries. And we just don't have it written down. 
However, more than li- uh, this is what I think it means, rather than that, is that there are several passages in the Old Testament, and I'll read you one, where it says that Jesus, and when I start to read it, you'll be, you'll, you'll like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. It comes from Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant. Listen to this. His appearance was so marred beyond any human resemblance. Oh, wait a minute. Wrong place. Sorry. Here we go. He was, listen to this. He was despised and rejected by men. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Do you know that Jesus lived not only with the stigma, the scandal of being from Nazareth, but he also lived with the scandal of being born, quote-unquote, out of wedlock. No, you don't understand. You know, God got Mary pregnant, and she wasn't unfaithful to me. You can, think, you can kind of imagine what the people would have thought. Yeah, right. That's what they do in Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of that town. And what Matthew, I believe, is pointing to is that the king was born in a lowly place that was despised, and he too would be despised, looked down upon. Now, if, let's say, Governor Branstad or someone of notoriety, someone famous, walked through that door, we would all turn our heads and kind of be like, whoa, what are they doing here? Right? We do that with important people, don't we? If anyone has ever deserved a reception like that where people would be, wow, amazing. Do you know who's here? It would have been Jesus. You with me? The king of the universe came to this earth. He deserved not to be born in Bethlehem and live in Nazareth. He deserved to be born in the royal city of David in Jerusalem with a palace and and pomp and circumstance and celebration. I mean, he's the king. He deserves that, right? And yet he took the humble path and he was born in a lowly way and he lived in a despised city. He was a humble man even though he was God. Do you know what it's like to be made fun of? To be ridiculed? For people to gossip about you and say mean things about you behind your back? You know what that's like, right? You've experienced that. But imagine most of us. It doesn't feel very good, does it? It kind of hurts, especially if it's someone that you thought that you could trust. That's the way Jesus was viewed from his hometown and beyond because of where he was from and where he grew up and how he was born. The question then becomes, why did God do that? Why did God have His Son, the King of the universe, be born to poor people in a poor place to be rejected and despised by everyone? Why did He do that? Here's why. Jesus came to free the people from their sin, not just from the Romans. 
What the Jews wanted, they wanted this powerful military leader that would conquer their enemies and reestablish the kingdom of Israel in the land of promise. That's what they wanted. And several times they tried to take Jesus away and make him that, and he slipped away. That's why several times you hear Jesus say, hey, this is who I am, this is what I've come to do, but don't tell anybody. Why? Because they have a misconception of who the Christ, the Messiah, is. So God had him come in a humble way so that the people wouldn't be distracted by why he really came. What do we learn from these, these, these three little scenes in the book of Matthew? We learn that Scripture is primary and prominent, that nothing ever happens unless God plans for it to happen or says it's going to happen. But here, this is, this is the, I think, the main point of these three passages I'd like to focus on. And I've already mentioned it several times. And I want to talk about it a little bit more in our last few minutes together. Jesus was king at his birth. Jesus deserves, has always deserved, and will always deserve unending, uninterrupted worship from everyone. Nothing in us or in anyone deserves the Son of God's love to come for us. The hope that He brings. The despised life that He lived. No one has ever, will ever deserve that type of gift. I, mean, I look at, you know, TJ and Laura, I look at your little son, and, and I have two, and I have two daughters, and I mean, there is just something about when you see your child, isn't it? And, and you're just like, Wow. That's my boy. That's my baby. There's an immediate connection with parents, right? You just, wow, that, you know, and you cherish them and you love them and you raise them and you hug them and, and you, you take pictures of them and you spend time with them. You comfort them when they're hurt. You rejoice with them when they're having a good time. You laugh with them and all the joy that children are. That's what I think about when I think that God sent His beloved Son. The one whom He cherishes. The one in whom He has loved from eternity past. Has enjoyed the most intense and rewarding and fulfilling fellowship with. And He says, Son... You need to go die for sinners. You need to live among them. And you need to pay for their sins. And the son says, I will go because I love them. Even though he's the king. Are you beginning to grasp the unmeasurable grace of God that is found in the person of Jesus? Everyone in this room has sinned against God in some way. More than likely you've done so this morning. You maybe have done so in the last few minutes just with your thoughts. That deserves God's punishment. You know that? That's what the Bible says. 
It doesn't deserve grace. It doesn't deserve love. It deserves wrath. So to think that we in any way could like kind of live mostly a good life and do enough good things where God would say, you know what, you're not as bad as that Herod guy. Sure, I'll forgive you. I'll let you come into heaven. I'll let you be one of my children because you're awesome. Can you see how massively foolish that is when you consider that the Son of God, King Jesus, came for sinners? You can't earn that. The good news, which we call the gospel, is this. That we are all born and have come into and committed sin, and we deserve judgment. But Jesus came to die in our place on the cross, paid our penalty. And those who believe and trust in Him, they will be saved. Not because they deserve it, not because they are worthy, but because God is gracious. For by what? What is, what is Paul saying to Ephesians? Chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace, God's favor, you didn't earn it, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the free gift of God. That's what Christmas is all about. When we, when we remember that the Christ child was born and lived the life that He lived, endured the dangers that He went through, lived a lowly and despised life. It screams from the hilltops, grace. You know, there is no sin that you or I could commit that God cannot or will not forgive if we submit ourselves to Him. You know that? Probably one of, another brutal leader of the old world was King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he killed people, threw him in the fire for not bowing down to his idol. He tried to do it to Daniel's three friends. God saved them. You know what's beautiful about that story? As horrific as Nebuchadnezzar was, did you know God saves him at the end? You ever read that? At the end of chapter, Daniel chapter 4. He gets saved. You're like, man, a guy like that can get saved? You bet he can. God's grace can save any sinner. So when this year when you, you meet with your family and you, and you enjoy a good meal and you give presents to your kids and you see them open up, tearing through the and smiles on their faces, don't forget that what we remember this time of year is that the immeasurable, undeserved grace of God is found in the person and gift of Jesus Christ. By the way, those of you who have trusted in Jesus by grace through faith, God doesn't love you more when you're obedient. He is pleased, but He doesn't love you more or love you less when you're disobedient. Did you know that? He already loves you to the fullest by giving you Jesus. There is nothing you can do, nothing you can do, if you're His, that would cause God to reject you. When you do sin, you just come to Him and confess that and say, God, forgive me. I've sinned against you. And He will. 
Look at what I did for you. Of course I will, because I love you. Brothers and sisters, Christmas is a story of God's grace. Don't forget that. Amen? Did we get any questions, Mark? Go ahead and put them up. Since God knew Herod would kill a lot of small children and had Jesus and his family leave, why didn't he intervene and stop others from being killed? That's the $50 question, isn't it? I mean, you could put a lot of scenarios up there. It's a, it's a question of what, you know, we even have a, a, a phrase or a word for that kind of a question. If God has the ability to prevent evil, why doesn't he do it? Sometimes they call it the problem of evil or what's known as theodicy. If God is just and kind, why does he do anything about evil? Here's the way I'd answer that, okay? It'll be incomplete, and you might be like, well, that still doesn't answer the question. But this is what God tells us, okay? One thing it tells us is that God's ways are not our ways. So in the divine wisdom of God, he has chosen to allow and permit things like this to happen. Not only then, but before then, and even after that, stuff like this still happens. Men commit sin, men and women, horrific sin, and they're not immediately dealt with and it's not prevented. Who's, here's what we need to remember. Who's the one committing the sin? Who killed the babies? Herod did. People do. Has God done something about it or will he do something about it? Yes, he will. He has done something about sin in the person of Jesus. And those who don't believe in Jesus will not get away with it. Now, why those kids? Why that event? Why that tragedy? That's the question we can't answer. We just say, and we trust, you know what? The Lord permitted that. He's not the source of it, but within his wisdom, he's doing something through it. And I'll I'll end with it. He also is the only one who can take tragedy and turn it into blessing. So sometimes he does that when we're not even aware of it. So I know that's kind of an incomplete question, but that, again, we can't go beyond what stands written. We know God is not evil. We know he's not sinful. We know he does permit evil things, but he's not the one who is the source of those things. Will he do something about it? Has he done something about it? Yes, he has, and he will. Through Jesus, and he will eventually make those pay who commit such sins. So that's how I'd answer that. Next one. Old Testament prophecies are confusing. Yeah, they can be. Some are fulfilled once in the Old Testament, then again later. Some are types. When reading the Old Testament, how do you tell what is prophetic? It seems like anything can be. Here is, and it does seem that way. Here's, here's, here's the rule of thumb. The New Testament is what clarifies to us what was prophecy. Okay, we can get lost in a lot of what the Old Testament has to say. Well, maybe that's a type of Jesus, and, and maybe the symbol of that is Mary. Don't do that. Just go with what the New Testament names as signs or types or fulfillments. Okay? Um, some are really clear, like this will happen. Wait a minute, that hasn't happened yet. Well, that still awaits to be happened. Like Jesus, what? L- ruling in Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth. That hasn't happened yet, but it talks about it. So you just, well, that's definitely a prophetic thing, and that will happen, and you trust. We may not know exactly how that happened, but here are the big chunk details that we know. So just stick with what does the New Testament call a prophecy? How does it describe it? And that'll keep you safe. Because if not, you can go run wild, and a lot of people do, and read things into the Old Testament that are not, are not actually there. So, New Testament is what clarifies. 
As the band comes forward and as we get ready to remember Jesus in communion, here's what I want you to think about before we take the bread and the cup. Remind yourself, remember, or maybe even think about it for the first time. That you don't deserve Jesus. You don't deserve the forgiveness He offers. You don't deserve the peace that He gives. You don't deserve the joy that He fills you with. You don't deserve the promise of eternity with Him. Where there is no more sin, there is no more weeping, and everything is renewed. You and I, we do not deserve Him. But on the other hand, because God is gracious, because He loves, He freely gives it His Son. And He says, you can't earn this, but I will give it to you if you receive it by faith. That's what we remember when we come around the communion table and we take the bread and the cup. We remember that King Jesus was born so that He might die the death I deserve. So let this time of remembrance be one of gratitude, a thankful heart. And maybe even utter a prayer and say, God, never let me forget how great and how gracious a gift Jesus is to me.